Good morning. The 5th century Christian philosopher Augustine became born again after reading two verses in Romans chapter 13. It was verses 13 and 14. Later on, he would say he didn't read, need to read any further because after reading these two verses, he said, a clear light flooded my heart and all darkness of doubt vanished away. That was Augustine's response to reading two verses in the book of Romans. Martin Luther was a 16th century Augustinian or Roman Catholic monk, and he was a professor of sacred theology at the University of Wittenberg in Germany. He too became a born-again believer after reading and understanding Paul's words to the Romans just in chapter 3. And after he was saved, this is what he told his students. He said that once he grasped the truth from Romans, he felt like he was reborn, having gone through the open doors into paradise. And he said the entire Bible took on new meaning and that this passage of Paul had become to him a gateway to heaven. Not too many years ago, there was a young man who wandered into a church much like ours, and they were preaching through Romans in a Sunday school class. He was not a believer, but he sat down and he listened as they taught about Romans, and he heard from Scripture. And at the end, one of the members politely made conversation with him and introduced himself and said to the young man, so how long have you been a believer? And the young man replied, for about five minutes now. So this is the impact that this book of Romans has had on Christians throughout the centuries. This morning, we're continuing our survey of the New Testament with the book of Romans. And as we do so, it's, it's hard to stress too vigorously the importance of this book. Martin Luther himself said it was the chief book of the New Testament. And he said, in his opinion, it deserves to be known by heart, word for word, by every single Christian. That's a standard I certainly haven't achieved, and we're not going to teach through it word for word this morning, obviously. Uh, and unfortunately, there are some of my favorite passages that I won't even be able to get to and share this morning. Um, but I hope that we can at least catch the main themes that Paul wanted to share. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would help me do that. Heavenly Father, you say through the psalmist that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Lord, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. In writing these words to the Romans, um, help light our path, Lord, that we would understand how relevant these words are to us as believers today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we come to this book, the book of Romans, we encounter a new genre that we haven't taken up yet. All through the, the Old Testament survey and even uh, in the New Testament, it's called the epistle. The epistle. This comes from the Greek word epistole, which means letter or message, epistole. Since many of the New Testament books were originally written as letters to churches or maybe to individuals, uh, they're referred to as the epistles. So we're going to start by talking about who wrote this, obviously the Apostle Paul. He was the writer of this epistle. And his given name was Saul. That was his Jewish name, possibly in honor, they think, uh, of King Saul, the first king of the United Israel. It wasn't until after Paul was a born-again Christian that he began to use the, the Greek name Paul, not Saul, for his audience's sake. He was born and raised in the city of Tarsus, which as you see is in Turkey. Um, Michael may have been there. Maybe someday you'll be able to evangelize there yourself. 
pretty much straight north of Jerusalem. At the time, Tarsus was one of the great cities of, of the world. It was a great learning center. And Saul was, was raised there. Both of his parents were Jewish, but they also possessed Roman citizenship. So he inherited the unique status of being both a Jew and a Greek, or a Roman, I should say. Um, his heritage as a Jew was flawless. He wrote in his epistle to the Philippians, he said he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, that's very important, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. So Saul was a Pharisee. When he was younger, he was taught a trade. He actually learned tent making. Uh, but his father was a Pharisee as well, and he was very wealthy, and he wanted Saul to be educated. And so he sent him down to Jerusalem to study under another highly respected and learned Pharisee named Gamaliel. And under Gamaliel's tutelage, Paul was educated according to the strict manner of the Jewish law. And he says in the book of Acts that he was zealous for the God of Abraham. And within his peer group, he stood out and he was noticed as probably the outstanding prospect among all the young Pharisee students to become an outstanding Pharisee. He was very intellectually gifted, this man Saul. We first learn about Saul in Acts chapter 7. You remember when um, Stephen was being stoned to death, Saul was there holding the robes and the clothing, giving approval to the people that were stoning Stephen. And in, as we go forward in Scripture, we learn that he became a fanatical persecutor and prosecutor of the way, the Christian way. He imprisoned Christians, he put them to death, and even said to his letter to the Galatians, he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And as a result, obviously, Christians everywhere were deathly afraid of Saul of Tarsus. So we could say that it's highly unlikely, he was a highly unlikely candidate to become um, an apostle or even a candidate for salvation. But God had a plan for him, and he was um, on the road to a city called Damascus. If you look on the map here, it's just north and east of Jerusalem. Saul was on his way there to persecute more Christians. We don't know what his ultimate intent was, but about three years after Christ had been resurrected and ascended into heaven, he manifests on that road to Saul of Tarsus. The living Lord Jesus Christ comes and meets Saul, and through this supernatural encounter, he revealed to him what his will was for him, or what his father's will was for him. And Paul, we'll call him Paul now, became both a witness of the resurrected Christ and a commissioned apostle. Incredible, miraculous uh, rebirth. So you could say he wasn't an apostle of Jesus Christ by his own initiative, but by um, divine appointment. So like he says, if you, if you have your Bibles, if you look in Romans, the opening verse of chapter 1, he says, he was called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And although he never, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, never lived with or studied directly under Jesus during his earthly ministry, like the other apostles did, the other 11, he came, became the 12th and final apostle to be commissioned by Jesus Christ. If we look at what he contributed to our understanding of the gospel, um, his letters make up 23% of the New Testament. That's almost a fourth. 
And if you take into account the book of Acts, which is almost solely dedicated to Paul, it's a little more than a third of the New Testament. So obviously Paul is someone we pay attention to. He plays such a key role in the New Testament. As far as historical setting, it's thought that Paul wrote somewhere around 57 AD. So this was less than 30 years after Christ was resurrected and ascended. And he's writing, we're we're pretty sure, in Corinth, which is right across from Athens. At the time Paul wrote to the Romans, uh, the church had apparently been in existence for some time. We know this because he says in his letter to them that he's had a desire to come and meet them and visit them for many, many years. And the church there was comprised mostly of Gentile believers with a few Jewish believers mixed in. Uh, They think that uh, sometime after um, uh, Pentecost in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit came came upon the believers and they spread out and took the gospel to the world, this is most likely when the church in Rome began, but there was some persecution of the Jews and some of them would have left. So he's communicating largely to a Gentile audience. And if you look in uh, the end of this epistle, he greets a lot of people in his, in his closing, and his greeting list included Jewish, Roman, and Greek names. And he clearly writes, if you look in uh, chapter 11, verse 13, he says, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. And there are a lot of other statements throughout his epistle that imply a very large Gentile membership, so a lot like us that he was writing to. But there there certainly were some Jewish believers there as well, and he will address them. It's very interesting as you look at all of Paul's epistles, this guy was a Pharisee, remember? He was a lawyer. He was a PhD. He could teach the law. And so he argues like a lawyer in his epistles. He He argues very logically, very tightly. And you don't see that anywhere as much as you do in Romans. And he had a lot of opponents. A lot of people wished that Paul wasn't teaching what he would be teaching. And as a lawyer, he he did something very interesting. You see it throughout the book of Romans. He would anticipate an opponent's argument to what he was teaching. And he would bring up a question before they could bring it up. He'd say, now, here's what I've been teaching you. And you'll say to me, boom. Then he'll explain, no, that's not the truth. Here's the truth. And you'll say, boom. And then he'll take that away before his opponents could make uh, their arguments. So he argues like a lawyer. You see that here uh, in Romans He was very passionate about his message. Paul was passionate. And this message, again, the Lord Jesus Christ had given him uh, knowledge in the Holy Spirit of what he was to preach, and he was not going to let anyone alter it. That's why he argues so logically and tightly. Now, let's talk about the why of the book of Romans. What was the occasion that Paul wrote for? or why? What were his reasons seems like there were a lot of reasons. that He doesn't give just one. Uh, one was he wanted to be with them. He wanted to meet them. He'd heard about them. He wanted to have a harvest with them, he said. He wanted to encourage them and strengthen them. Another reason was that he said he wanted to share with them, remind them of the truths that they'd already been given, which is kind of what we're doing here today. He wanted to inform them also of his desire to take the gospel to Spain. If you see how far away that was, he was going to ask them to help him financially. That was one of his reasons. But most importantly, he wanted to infuse the Roman believers with a crystal clear idea of not only what they believed, but why they believed it, and how they they should put this into practice in their daily lives. 
He wanted the gospel to be proclaimed. So he had more than one reason to write to them, but this surely, the declaration of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ was certainly a key overarching emphasis, a key theme for Paul. So now that we've covered some background, biographical information about the guy that wrote this, let's talk about his, his reasons for writing this epistle. Let's look at the basic subdivisions, kind of an outline, if you will, that we're going to cover today. You'll notice, um, well, aside from the opening 17 verses in his letter opening and introduction, um, and J.D. and I were talking about this the other day, the, the first 11 chapters are really uh, doctrine, theological teaching, okay? Here's the truth. And then as you move into uh, section 6 in particular, Paul's going to talk about deeds. Okay, what do you do with this? All right? How do we apply these truths to our daily lives? Or as, as Francis Schaeffer said, how should we then live? If this is true, then so what? What do we do now? Paul knew that doctrine had to be put into practice. It's one thing to understand the truth and to take a position on the truth, but it's quite a different thing to put it in our hearts and our lives and let it direct us, not just in church where we're with other believers, but at home in front of our spouse, in front of our children, even in the workplace, in the public square. To be a Christian, not just think I'm a Christian. So, like we say, um, he, he really wanted people to put this to work. Um, 27 times he uses the word therefore to show the implication of what he'd been taught. This is true. Let me tell you the truth. Therefore, boom. Here's what it means to us. Like I said, if we had to single out one theme, it would be actually found in the introduction. So if you'll open your Bibles to chapter 1 of Romans, if you haven't already done that. You'll see in verse 7 of chapter 1, he's already greeted all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And then let's look at what we consider the final uh, two passages of the intro. That's verses 16 and 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul really, really cared about preaching the good news. And it's kind of ironic, Paul is regarded by academians and uh, uh, for years, people have written systematic theologies just from his 13 epistles, just looking at Paul's theology. He's regarded as a great theologian, and we can say he is, but what's ironic is Paul considered himself to be an evangelist, first and foremost. He, he was a missionary, and he even says in uh, Romans eleven thirteen, like I said, he considered himself an apostle to the Gentiles, but he really, really, really cared about preaching the good news. So if we... Um, Look back at our outline here. Let's go to the second section. The wrath of God on sinful humanity is what this is entitled. In this section, it gets really heavy. Paul is going to emphasize mankind's absolute sinful depravity. And this part's not a lot of fun. He begins to unpack the gospel first by giving the bad news so that the readers would understand the good news. See, Paul kind of understood that people who don't think they're sick, you can give them free medicine and they'll say, great, thank you, but 
I really don't need this. So Paul's going to convict everyone. So look what he writes. If you go to stay in chapter 1, look at verses 18 through 21. And I'll read this for us. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. What he's saying here is all you have to do is look at creation and you know there's a God. The atheist who denies that is suppressing the truth. It's kind of like you look at this building, we all intuitively know there was an architect. It didn't build itself, right? So he says, we all know that there's a God. We can know about him. There is no excuse. And he goes on, he says, for although they knew God, he, see, he makes the assumption that everybody kind of knows God. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then if you skip to verse 24, Paul says, what happens then after they suppress the truth and deny God? He gives them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. And here he's talking about wrath, and I think we've mentioned this before. We always think about God's wrath as an immediate decimation or destruction. But here he's talking about a different kind of wrath. It's kind of like the wrath that we learned about as Michael taught through the book of Hosea. When the Israelites went after other gods, God turned his back on them. And his wrath took the form of withdrawing his blessings and his protection from harm. This is what's happening here. God says he gives them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and the dishonoring of their bodies. And then Paul goes on to explain exactly what he means by this. And if you ever hear this modern argument that Paul or the Bible never expressly addresses homosexuality or condemns it, um, people that say that haven't read verses 26 through 28. Maybe they're just repeating what they've heard or they're suppressing the truth. It's very obvious what Paul is saying here. And the penalty is severe if you read verse 32, he goes on to say that those who practice such things deserve to die. What I just told you, I could possibly be put in jail in some states for telling you what Paul wrote. The rest of the verse, we don't always read the rest of the verse, it indicts even those who give approval to those who practice such things. So what Paul is basically saying is those who support the homosexual movement and say, I'm not gay, but I, I'm okay with them being gay. He says they're the same in God's eyes as those who live that lifestyle. Okay? But wait, there's more. If you move to chapter 2, Paul turns the table on every single one of us who sits in judgment of the homosexual. And he says, look, no one has an excuse because every single person alive does evil things and doesn't obey the truth. This is very important. If you look in uh, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he tells us that God has placed his law in our hearts. He's given us what we know as a conscience, and you've heard it broken down. Conscience, con, with science, knowledge, with knowledge. So we all know that what Paul is saying is true. We know in our own hearts that we don't follow God's moral law. We know that we're sinners, and he's, he points this out to them. And he knows that as he's addressed this homosexuality, 
and he's writing largely to Gentiles, he anticipates there's probably some Jews sitting there thinking, yeah, see, all of you Gentiles and sinners. And so Paul turns and now he says, both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. That's in verse 9. And they're all for, all therefore equally guilty. So listen to this. Jew, Gentile, gay, straight, men, women, black, white, rich, poor, they're all under the penalty and presence of sin. Mankind is totally depraved. He is hammering this point home here. So there's no ethnic group, no group of people with or without money. Neither gender is immune to sin. None are righteous. And he bluntly states this. If you look in uh, verses 10 through 12, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Wow. He just gave the bad news. But... And Paul transitions to his next emphasis. You see number three here. God's righteousness and justification through faith for those who believe. Beginning in chapter 3, turn there, uh, verses 21 through 26. If you look at that, Paul now gives the good news. This is the theological heart of this epistle, of the book of Romans. And we'll take a closer look at exactly what the good news is that Paul had received from Jesus Christ. We'll break it down. He summarizes it most concisely. If you look at verses 23 through 26, we'll read that here. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Some verses, uh, some translations say, as a sacrifice of atonement, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And we have quite a few words or forms of words here in this one passage that have become commonplace in Christian theology and thousands upon thousands of sermons have been taught just on the words in these passages. So let's break them, break them down just for a minute because they're so important in what he wanted the church to understand in Rome about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've highlighted these here. You see the word sin, disobedience to God, disobedience to God word, God's word. Justification, meaning that God makes us right. He presents us as holy. By his grace, the word grace, we know that that's when you get something you absolutely do not deserve. It's the opposite of mercy, which is, well, it's not the opposite. But it's different than mercy, which is you don't get what you really deserve. Redemption, meaning you were bought at a price, you were paid for. And then the sacrifice of atonement. Some translations use the word propitiation. This is really important. I'll spend a minute on this uh, because it's, it's, it's so important here. The idea is that the wrath of God, which he unpacked in those first three chapters, should have been directed at every one of us, certainly at me, because of my sin, because of our sin. All his wrath was poured out on Christ, who was the perfect sacrifice. Now, Paul 
being a lawyer, understood the legal ramifications of this. And I think it helps to look through the eyes of a lawyer at what Christ accomplished on the cross. Do you remember what, what Christ said? What were his final words on the cross before he gave up his life? What did Christ say? It is finished, which means the debt has been paid. So in a court of law, if a man stands guilty of a crime, there must be payment for that crime, right? We know this. Any judge that overlooks a penalty of a crime without payment is certainly not just. There has to be payment for the crime. But if someone's already paid the crime, the judge can say, look, I know you're guilty of this crime, but somebody's already paid your penalty. You can walk free. Your penalty's been paid. So that's what Paul means when he said, God, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, meaning Jesus' blood, that Jesus was this propitiation. This is a big word which means a sacrifice for atonement. He paid the debt. It was a legal transaction that fulfilled the law. The requirements of the law were fulfilled. Okay? Do you get that? So that's why when Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, that helps looking at it from a legal perspective as a legal transaction. And then, of course, the word faith, moving on here. Obviously, Paul says we must believe in Jesus Christ in our hearts and be willing to profess it with our mouth that he is the Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And Paul wants, to, wants everyone to know that we have to entrust our lives to him and that faith is not just a noun but a verb. So what does it mean when Paul talks about God's righteousness here? The word righteous, this is something that's really important too. I have to camp here for a little bit because this is such a key thing. I had to understand this. The word righteous and the word just are used throughout the New and the Old Testament to mean exactly the same thing. They're almost interchangeable. Whatever word is used, righteousness or justness, it's the same thing. It means that if you look up Google on, on righteousness, it means acting in accord with divine or moral law. When we say divine law, moral law, they're the same thing. It means God acts in accordance with his divine moral law, meaning that if there's punishment, there must be payment. It has to do with God's actions, and they're always right, and they're always fair because he is righteous he has to punish sin. He has to punish evil. We wouldn't want Hitler to go unpunished, would we? That would be unjust. But if God destroyed both the wicked and the righteous without distinguishing them, he wouldn't be acting righteously or justly, would he? So if we're guilty of sin, that means we are not righteous, then we deserve God's punishment. That's what Paul has laid out, again, in the first three chapters. And this is what absolutely scared Martin Luther to death. He was, again, he was a Roman Catholic priest. He was taught that it wasn't enough just to believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died on the cross. The Roman Catholics believed that. He also had been taught that he had to make himself righteous by participating in the sacraments, participating in baptism, through confession, taking communion, all of these other works that the Catholic Church said were needed for a person to be saved. And he did, Martin Luther did all these things really well. He even said, if somebody looked at my life, they would never be able to criticize me. But he knew in his heart, because again, God placed his law in our hearts, that he was a sinner. And that a righteous God must punish unrighteousness. And he knew that was him. He so badly wanted to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, because it was this exact phrase that I'm talking about here, the righteousness of God, that was a stumbling block to him. He knew 
that he personally couldn't measure up to God's standard of holiness. And so he said, I actually hated this righteous God who punishes sinner. That was Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk. He actually hated God for this term. One day, he had a light bulb moment. He had prayed and struggled for so long to understand this. And suddenly, he realized that it was God's incredible grace that he justifies us by faith. And before this, he'd hated this phrase, the righteousness of God, because he'd been taught it simply meant God punishes sinners and the unjust. And he finally understood what Paul was saying here, that the righteousness is a gift of God received passively, passively by us, the sinners, to all who come to him in faith. And he finally understood what Paul meant when he said the righteous shall live by faith. And once he realized this and understood this, that he couldn't achieve his own righteousness, he would passively receive it from a righteous God who'd already punished sin. Martin Luther went on to spark the Protestant Reformation that we all know about. All this after reading and understanding and pondering and praying over this passage in Romans. It's here he understood the good news of the gospel that Paul was teaching. Isn't that incredible? Moving forward in Romans chapter 4, Paul uses Abraham as an example of one who had this saving faith. Paul references Genesis 15, where Abraham's faith led God to count him as righteous before he'd done any religious activity like being circumcised. He was justified strictly on the basis of faith, not by works. And Paul said this was not only true for Abraham, but also for King David. Because you remember, even after the law was given, David was justified only by what? Faith. So what Paul was arguing against here is Jewish legalism, or we could even say Roman Catholic legalism, right? Any attempt to earn one's salvation by good works. And this is what differentiates Christianity from all false world religions. And according to Paul, going back to his bad news, we're all condemned by our own inability to keep this law. We all know this. We fail to live by it, not only in our actions, but in our hearts. That's true for me. So again, Paul tells us, once again, it's only by God's grace, through faith, that we can be justified. And then in Romans chapter 5, he goes on to expand and continue uh, emphasizing the good news, and he explains that every single believer justified by faith can rejoice in the knowledge that they are the recipient of God's immense grace. This is what we call the assurance of salvation. It's an amazing gift. You know, you experience God's incredible personal love. This is an intimate God, not a far-off, distant, deistic God who just kicked everything off and stands back and watches. He knows how many hairs we have on our heads. He knew our names before we were knit together in our, in, in our mother's wombs. And Paul says, you can know this incredible God through the Holy Spirit being put in your heart. And then he clarifies the privileges of salvation in Christ, like being saved from the wrath of God and having the hope, the assurance of the final and eternal glory of God in eternity. And then move to the chapters 6 through 8. This is entitled Dead to Sin, Alive in the Spirit. Paul wants the church in Rome and us to understand how a saved believer can live like a saved believer. Look at chapter 6. Go to verses 11 and 12. He says, So you must consider yourselves dead to sin 
and alive in Jesus Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, but to make you obey its passions. For Paul, the justified believer, should be transformed by the Holy Spirit. He's saying that without the Holy Spirit, we cannot die to sin. And he mentions the miraculous transformative power of the Holy Spirit no less than 17 times here. It's just like if you were to read um, his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he's explaining to them that they can be transformed, cleansed, rejuvenated by the Holy Spirit. He says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's verse 14, actually, in chapter 8. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we're able to die to the desires of our own bodies. So again, in these three chapters, Paul is telling his readers in Rome that as saved believers, we can live like a saved believer by considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ, not letting sin reign and make us obey its passions. And then we get to chapters 9 through 11, and this is interesting. He's talking about Israel here, Israel's divine purpose. A lot of scholars are just completely perplexed. Why in the heck would he just parenthetically insert, boom, something about Israel? He's just given us the gospel. He's going to go into application. Why between these two bookends would he just insert this parenthetically? But Paul had a purpose. You see, he's anticipating, again, like a lawyer, a possible objection to everything he's just taught. Here's the question he's anticipating. How... Can the Gentiles be assured that they can trust God for the completion of his plan? Justification, sanctification, being made like into the Holy Spirit's image, and then ultimately glorification. If God has failed to fulfill all the promises he made to Israel, and it's a fair question, and Paul wants to answer it. And so in chapter 9, first he expresses his anguish. Remember, he's an Israelite. He's a A Hebrew of Hebrews, he said, so he is anguished over the fact that they're lost, Israel, in spite of the many covenant promises that God made to them. He would have willingly traded places for them, he said in verse 3. Then he launches into a discussion of what God was doing in his day as he was writing this letter. And he says, this is exactly what God has always done with his chosen people. God's always chosen some but not all of Abraham's physical descendants to be justified, to be in a right relationship with him. He mentions that this was the case with Abraham's son Isaac, but not his son Ishmael. And with Isaac's son Jacob, whom was loved, and Esau, who was hated. So Paul's saying one of the fundamental rights that God claimed for himself was his freedom to give mercy to some and to harden the hearts of others. And he does this both to display his power and to bring glory to himself. So the objects of wrath that that are talked about here in 9, verse 22, are prepared for destruction by God, the Creator. This is what Scripture teaches. And and we all have to admit, when when I learned these things, I wasn't brought up to understand or believe these things. These are things that are really, really hard to hear. But we have to keep in mind that in the very next chapter, Paul will balance God's absolute control with the fact that these vessels, some of them are intended for destruction, that those vessels acted willfully and deserved their eventual punishment. And in Romans 10, he lays out the human problem with Israel's condition. The people, God's chosen people, willfully rejected their Messiah. The main idea is here that he wants them to know is that God did enough to get the gospel to the Jews. We know this. Jesus said 
he came to preach the gospel to the Jews first, right? And then to the Gentiles. God made his law readily available to them. All the way back in the wilderness, Paul says, made it available to them in Paul's day. So if anyone could object or would object that there hadn't been enough messengers sent to the Israelites, Paul responds by saying that the message was extended to Israel. Israel's problem was, if you look in verse 21 of chapter 10, that they were a disobedient and obstinate people. So what Paul is wanting everyone to know here, again, he's writing to Gentiles, but he's also reminding his Jewish readers, God had made promises to their forefathers about creating a great nation through Abraham's descendants, through his countless offspring. If you remember the Abrahamic covenant, he wanted his readers to understand that God would fulfill his promises. In the meantime, the Gentiles were enjoying these promises. They weren't the original branches of the olive tree known as Israel, but they were grafted in and they could also enjoy uh, the promises for now but that, that God, he wanted him to know, the Gentiles and the Jews, that God is righteous, he is the one who saves, and that he never forgets his promises. Can I get an amen? Thank you. All right, let's move on to uh, number six, the application of the gospel in Christian life. This is where Paul shifts his focus to a more practical application, especially related to church unity. He was passionate about behavior that would promote unity within the church, and he knew that a church that was blown apart by internal strife, I'm sure many of us have seen this before, wouldn't be as effective in spreading the good news of the gospel as one that was unified in the truth. And he begins this section by urging the Romans to respond to God's mercy by presenting themselves as living sacrifices. And the rest of the letter explains what he means by this. To be a living sacrifice means living in humility towards each other. I don't know about you, but that's so hard for me. But he says each member of the body has their own different unique function. And then we're to give to each other freely with our different gifts. Paul challenges them to show genuine love as believers and to avoid retaliation against anyone that harms them. Again, this is so hard for me. Not just those in the church, but those outside the church. And to overcome evil with good, he says. He also recognizes that since if we wrangle with the governmental powers, that'll hinder our ability to spread the gospel. So he instructed them to avoid conflict with the the governmental leaders, reminding them God had providentially placed them under that government. And he even talks about, respectfully, we need to pay taxes. I know a lot of people don't want to hear that. But Paul then returns in chapter 13 to this concept of Christian unity. Unity for effective outreach. It was so important that he writes a prayer for it. If you look in um, chapter 15, I believe it's verses 5 and 6. writes a prayer for Christian unity. And then we move to number 7. We're having to move pretty quickly here. This is his conclusion and greetings, beginning in uh, chapter 15, uh, verse 14. He begins to bring his letter to a close. Sixteen times he gives the command to greet certain saints in the church there, He wants the the body there to know that these are saints living as believers. And he wants them to be held up so that people can see this is what it looks like to be a believer. Not just to say it, but to be it. He wants them to to, um, unify the church. They're laboring for Christ. And as he ends his greetings, Paul warns them. This is really interesting. 
He warns them about those who cause divisions in the church, and he actually prescribes avoiding them. If you'll go to uh, chapter 16, verse 17. This is often overlooked. When I read this, I thought, wow, I never saw that before. We have these discussions on unity in the church. Paul says, Romans 16, 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them. So according to Paul, the ones who cause divisions aren't the ones that are teaching and defending the truth. According to Paul, the divisive ones are the ones that don't hold to the truth, that are teaching untruths. So again, he's all about unity, but Paul is not about unity just for the sake of unity. He wants them to be unified in Christ and in nothing else. And he wants them to understand, we'll go back to what we, then we're closing here. He wants them to understand this. Romans 3, 23 through 26. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a sacrifice atonement by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's what Paul wanted us to be unified on. J.D. sent me a, this will be my final closing comment, J.D. sent me a great little article on the book of Romans. And the author concludes with this thought. I'll let this be my closing thought. We are conditioned to think of the gospel in terms of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But in my estimation, says this author, there is no statement of the gospel more clearly and logically presented by the Apostle Paul than in the book of Romans. I hope you desire, he says, to study this book as much as I desire to teach it. And I pray that you will never be the same for having done so.